As part of the orchestrated attack on our divine Savior, just like clockwork every year around this time, the major media come out with their so-called Easter commentaries. And invariably, they'll be denigrating or snide remarks, sometimes subtle, sometimes not so subtle, made about what they refer to as a resurrection event, complete with quotes from knowledgeable experts like college professors, ministers, or biblical scholars. For example, we are assured by John Dominic Crossan, the former father John Dominic Crossan, who is a professor of biblical theology at what you could call the former Catholic University at DePaul University, that we're assured by him that in fact our Lord did not resurrect from the dead. And the reason they couldn't find his body is because our Lord was buried in a shallow grave and then dogs dug it up and ate it. Now how Father Cross or excuse me, John Dominic Crossan comes to this kind of knowledge is not clear to the rest of us mere mortals. Or my personal favorite is the swoon theory. The swoon theory is our Lord went into a swoon when he was on the cross. And then his friends pulled the nails, got him down, and three days later he appeared to everybody and they were amazed. It was as if he had resurrected from the dead. Well, besides the fact that it ignores realities like he's beaten half to death and been nailed to a cross and hanging there, you're not going to be out walking around in a couple days. It also ignores the fact that the Roman soldiers were personally responsible to make sure that a man who they were making sure was executed was executed. That's why I have the death blow, which St. Longinus did when he pierced the heart of our Lord. That was a standard procedure. Make sure this guy is dead. They can report, we got the job done. So, but facts don't stand in the way of our, these uh, modernist theories. It's a miracle to me sometimes that anybody would be stupid enough to propose theories like that, but it shows what depths the enemies of God are willing to stoop to. Anyway, why is it that they're so preoccupied with Easter? After all, Good Friday is the important day. That's the day when our Lord offered the holy sacrifice of the cross. He offered himself up and poured out his precious blood and saved us from sin and Satan. That's why we call it Good Friday, because he made that sacrifice. Why are the enemies so preoccupied with Easter and mocking Easter? Very seldom do you see anybody denying that our Lord was crucified. Very frequently they deny his resurrection. To understand that, we need to take a closer look at the significance of Easter and understand that, like everything else in our religion, we need to go back to the beginning. We need to look at Adam. So let's review. Everyone knows that when Adam was created, he's the perfect man. And when God created him, among other things, he gave him three gifts. The gift of integrity, the gift of impassibility, and the gift of immortality. Okay, so what were they? First, the gift of integrity. We've talked about that before. As we know, that was a power that kept all of Adam's senses and his imagination totally under the rule of right reason. What does that mean? It meant that he could control his imagination. No distractions, and he didn't have to worry about that, unlike us. It also meant 
that his emotions would be in strict accordance with reason. For example, suppose he looked over and saw Eve doing something wrong and thought to himself, this situation calls for anger. He would have been exactly as angry as was reasonable for exactly as long as was reasonable, and then he could have instantly stopped being angry. No time to calm down, nothing, gone like that. We don't know what that's like because we don't have the gift of integrity. Because of the gift of integrity, he didn't suffer from what we do, which is this inordinate desire for sensible goods against the order of reason. We have that $3 word for that, concupiscence, but it just means our passions will drag us around if we're not careful. He had his passions totally under control. So that's the first gift, integrity. Second, the gift of impassibility. This is a power which, as St. Thomas points out, it preserved Adam from suffering, partly through the use of his own reason, by which he was able to avoid anything harmful, and also partly through divine providence, which protected him so that no harm would come upon him unexpectedly. So impassibility protected him from bodily suffering. Third, the gift of immortality. Adam's soul, like ours, was a spirit. So the soul is naturally immortal. A human soul does not need a special gift from God to be immortal. A human soul is immortal by its very nature. By its nature. And that's part of the problem. Now keep that in mind. We'll come back to that. As we all remember from our study of spirit last fall, when we looked at souls and angels, whenever we start thinking about these topics of spirit, we have to be really careful not to confuse ourselves with the pictures that we make in our imaginations. Our imaginations make pictures of material things, not spiritual things. Anybody that studied geometry already understands this principle. If you remember when you first learned about a geometric point, that it didn't take up any space, every time I can remember being in the seventh grade and making points on a paper and trying to make them smaller and smaller until I get a geometric point. And it took me a while to figure out you can't do that. No matter how you imagine the point, it's wrong. We can understand it with our intellect, but the image is wrong because any time we imagine one, it's already taking up space. Okay, that's because our imaginations make images of material things, material things. But because spiritual things, are like souls, are purely spiritual, we have to keep in mind that any image we make of them will automatically be wrong. Okay, so we can understand spiritual things with our intellect, but the pictures we make are going to be incorrect because our picture-making faculty can't picture spirit. So let's not be misled by our imaginations. Now that was the precaution. Let's quickly review then the difference between spirit and matter. It's a review. We've already discussed this before. Remember that the difference between spirit and matter is that matter has parts. Matter can fall apart. And spirit does not have parts. Spirit is simple. And remember that a being which has no parts does not occupy space. A being which has no parts does not occupy space. Anything that occupies space has to have parts. Space is what matter spreads its parts out in. It doesn't matter how teeny you get something, 
if it has, if it's in space, it has parts. A being without parts has no spread. Space and it have nothing in common. It's spaceless. A being with no parts has no spread at all. It's superior to the need for space. A soul has no parts. A soul does not occupy space. Since a soul has no parts, it can't fall apart. Since it can't fall apart, it must, by its very nature, be able to live forever. It must be immortal. Adam's soul, like ours, was by its nature immortal. It can't fall apart because it doesn't have parts, okay? So what was the gift of immortality then? If Adam's soul is immortal, what was the gift? Adam's body was just like ours. It's composed of parts, arms, legs, head, etc. That means his body could, naturally speaking, fall apart. And so St. Thomas points out by itself, his body had no natural way of preserving him from death. So this gift, the gift of immortality, was above man's nature and preserved him from death by preventing his body and soul from separating. Because remember, death means our souls are separated from his, our bodies. And, and the, this gift prevented that from occurring. But unfortunately, as we know, Adam sinned. And since all men fell in him, we've all inherited this disaster. We've all lost the three gifts. We lost the gift of integrity, which kept the passions under the rule of reason. And now, as we are all too bitterly aware, instead of acting with the gift of integrity and leading our passions with reason, we're all too often led around by our passions. That's why we have to do penance and mortify ourselves to help get our passions in line so we're leading them and they're not leading us. Because we all know where they'll lead us if we let them. Second, we lost the gift of impassibility. Instead of being able to avoid harm, instead, as we all know too well, and the evidence is the fact that we have doctors and hospitals prove, we're all subject to injuries, sickness, and suffering. Third, we lost the gift of immortality. We all have to die. And all these are punishments for sin, for that first sin, that original sin of Adam. But we still haven't mentioned the worst catastrophe. These are preternatural gifts. We also lost supernatural gifts. The worst, and by far away, the worst thing that happened as a result of Adam's sin is we fell from grace. Instead of being God's good graces from the very first moment of our conception, like Adam, like Eve, like the Blessed Mother of God, and like our Lord, instead of being conceived free from sin, conceived in the state of grace, we're all conceived in a state of original sin. Instead of being born as a children of God, now, as Ephesians 2.3 points out, we are born by nature children of wrath. We're born in sin. And, to make matters worse, after we've reached the age of reason, as Romans 3.23 points out, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we're born children of wrath, and after we've reached the age of reason, at some point in line, we've at least committed venial sins. What does that mean? It means thanks a lot to Adam. From the very moment of our conception, we're all members of a crime family, the family of man. Each and every one of us, except our Lord and the Blessed Mother. That's reality. We're members of that crime family, 
at war against God. And then to add to that problem, we're all guilty, after we reach the age of reason, of our own crimes against God. The bottom line is that all men are members of an enemy family at war with God. And then all men who have reached the age of reason at some point are also guilty of personally offending God to boot. Now, as if that weren't enough, as we pointed out, our souls are naturally immortal. Don't ever forget that. Why is that part of the problem? Because although they're naturally immortal, our souls don't have the natural powers to get to heaven. And even if they could get to heaven, they don't have the natural powers to live the life of heaven. In fact, our souls don't even have the natural powers to get to purgatory. Now just think what that means. That means, naturally speaking, there's only one other choice. That's what we can get by our natural powers. We can't get to purgatory and we can't get to heaven. Then we start realizing that what Adam's done for us has landed us in very, very dire straits. And there's still another huge problem that happened after Adam fell. Even if a man died with the ability to get to heaven, which is the same as saying even if a man died in a state of grace, Adam's sin had slammed heaven shut. No man were allowed in. Heaven was completely closed to mankind. So here's the situation after Adam fell. Instead of enjoying the gifts of integrity, impassibility, and immortality, men suffered from concupiscence, suffering, sickness, disease, and death. Instead of enjoying the state of grace from the moment of conception, they suffered from original and actual sin. Instead of being born free children of God, they're born slaves to Satan. After they died, even if they died in a state of grace, like St. Joseph, heaven was closed to them. Even if men died in a state of grace, but with some punishment still due to them, so they went to purgatory, when they got done with purgatory, they still couldn't get into heaven. Heaven was closed to them. The very best they could hope for was the limbo of the fathers, the underworld, what we call in the creed inferos or hell. Now, hell, we don't mean Gehenna hell. That old English word has gone to mutation, so we have more restricted meaning now. But it's sort of the air-conditioned place of natural happiness in the underworld, you might think of it. Not down where the demons and the devil and the damned are roasting, but a place of natural happiness. That was the best they could do. So when we talk about our Lord descending into hell on Good Friday, Holy Saturday, that's where he was, a place of natural happiness, where St. Joseph was, where Moses was where Adam and Eve were. They had to wait. So, now we have the context of Holy Week. Once we understand what the situation was, once we realize that Christ our Lord came as the new Adam to fix what was wrecked, we can start putting Easter into perspective, and then we can see why these clowns are always attacking it. How does Easter fit into the picture? Christ our Lord taught a specific body of truths that must be believed to be saved. The kernel of those truths is, of course, contained in the Apostles' Creed. That's our faith. The true faith 
without which it is impossible to please God, as Scripture says. But we need to remember something else. Our faith is a special power, a supernatural power that gives light to our intellects, a power to be able to see the world in a different light. And because of that, our faith is supposed to penetrate every aspect of our lives. Literally everything we see or undergo, we are supposed to understand in the light of faith, in the light of eternity. But you don't need me to tell you that's a difficult proposition. And we're not alone having a difficult proposition. There are 12 men that spent three years with our Lord, watching Him perform miracles, learning the faith. Where were they on Good Friday? How many of them were standing at the foot of the cross? One. Only one. And yet they knew He was the true Lamb of God that had come to take away the sins of the world. They knew from the beginning that's what St. John the Baptist called him right when the apostles first learned of him. They knew from the beginning. There he was on the cross conquering sin and Satan during the crucifixion. And where were the apostles? They had the faith, but it hadn't penetrated their lives yet. Our Lord did his greatest work on Good Friday, pouring out the precious blood for the forgiveness of sins. But who believed it out of them? Only one. So Easter follows a pattern that we've seen before in the Gospels. Remember how Christ our Lord told the crippled man, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees got all agitated and thought, what's going on? And then our Lord, in order to demonstrate that what he said was true, that something spiritual that we can't see, the forgiveness of sins, in order to demonstrate that something spiritual is true, he performed a miracle. That's something in the material order that we could see. The spiritual miracle that the man's sins were forgiven, nobody can see that. He performs the miracle to prove what he's saying is true. The visible healing of that crippled man when he said, get up, take up your bed and walk, that visible healing is a confirmation of the spiritual healing. Spiritual realities are invisible. And so God does miracles to strengthen our faith and to prove that what he says is true and reasonable and that we can believe it, that he's reliable. Let's tie all that together so we can see the context of Easter. Adam had been created in the state of grace, in friendship with God, and enjoyed the gifts of integrity, impassibility, and immortality. By his sin, he forfeited grace and the gifts and sold himself and his posterity, that's us, into slavery to the devil. And man was incapable of making amends to God for this terrible offense that Adam had done. Therefore, Christ our Lord became man in order to lay down his life and pour out his blood as a substitutional victim for men to be that true Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In his agony in the garden, and agony is a Greek word referring to combat, our Lord took the sins of mankind, all of them, from Adam's first original sin to last sin will be committed right before the crack of doom. He took all those on him, and then in his suffering death on the cross, he made reparation for all those sins. By his sacrifice on the cross, he blotted out all our sins. And by his merits, he won for us the restoration to grace and friendship with God 
and he liberated us from slavery to sin and Satan. That's what he did on Good Friday. Okay, but remember, the only thing the witnesses could see on Good Friday was our Lord dying on a cross, beaten up, scourged with his flesh hanging off him, blood pouring off him, and nailed to a cross. That's all they could see. They couldn't see him conquering sin and Satan. Those were spiritual and invisible realities. This is where Easter comes in. Remember, death is one of the punishments for sin. And just as our Lord performed the physical healing of the crippled man in order to prove that he had forgiven his sins, so also Christ our Lord performs his great miracle, the resurrection, in order to prove that he has conquered sin and Satan. He came busting up out of that tomb on Easter morning and even dragged some others up out of their tombs as well at the same time in order to confirm our faith in his words and in his works in order to prove that since he had conquered death something we could visibly see he had also conquered sin and Satan and the enemy understands that now we can see clearly why they spend so much time trying to deny or ignore Easter if you weaken your faith in Easter your faith in Calvary is weakened and they're doing a darn good job. Let's rock, close with a thought from that great bishop and doctor of the church, St. John Chrysostom. If Christ is not risen, then we have no guarantee that God has accepted his death as redemption. And if God has not accepted Christ's death as redemption, then nothing has been accomplished and the work of salvation has yet to be done. But Christ has risen. Indeed, he has risen.